0: Hey there, this is Devin from Legal Eagle. You're smart, and I know that you're smart because you're listening to this podcast. But if you want even more incredible, educational-ish content from me and my friends, then you've got to get Nebula. Because in addition to offering tons of terrific podcasts ad-free, Nebula is a place where my friends and I get to release tons of experimental and exclusive content that you can't find anywhere else. Plus, all of my videos are ad-free. Just head to watchnebula.com slash Legal Eagle Radio to sign up now. By now, you've probably heard about the terrible acts of Ethan Crumbly on November 30th, 2021 at Oxford High School. It's the latest in a long string of school shootings in America. But what is legally interesting about this case is that in addition to filing murder charges against Ethan Crumbly, Oakland County Prosecutor Karen McDonald decided to charge his parents, James and Jennifer Crumbly, with involuntary manslaughter. With this decision, McDonald broke with other prosecutors who have in the past declined to charge parents for the acts of a child. So the question is, what, if anything, is different about this particular case? does it signal a trend towards making parents more responsible for school shootings? As is often the case these days, many people are misunderstanding the charges that were levied against James and Jennifer Crumbly. Here, these charges hinge on a difficult legal question. Could they have reasonably foreseen that their teenage son would use the gun they purchased to kill people? Did they willfully disregard the results to others that might follow from their action or failure to act? And here, the prosecutor is arguing that the answer is yes, they knowingly armed a child who had serious emotional problems, and when they were warned that he was searching for ammunition and had drawn a violent scene involving someone being shot, they didn't search Ethan's backpack or take him home. The defense lawyers will likely argue the answer is no. The parents locked up their gun, consulted with the school officials, and everyone reached the same conclusion that there was no risk that their son would take a gun out and shoot people, which is why he was sent back to class. Now, millions of parents, and by proxy their children, are armed in America, and I'm sure the Crumblies will argue that they had no way to know that this case would have been different from all of the other millions of cases that do not result in intentional homicide. Here, Oakland County filed involuntary manslaughter charges against Jennifer and James Crumbly, accusing them of failing to intervene on the day that their son killed four people, despite being confronted twice by the school about their son's interest in weapons. According to the prosecutor on Black Friday, 15-year-old Ethan went to his father, James, to purchase a 9mm Sig Sauer from the Acme shooting goods. Ethan posted a photograph of the new gun on his social media later that day. The post said, my new beauty with a heart emoji. Jennifer Crumbly posted that the gun was a Christmas present for Ethan, and they had enjoyed a mother-son day at the range. On the following Monday, November 29th, one day before the shooting, a teacher said that she saw a boy searching online for ammunition, which prompted a meeting with school officials. The school left a voicemail and sent an email, but Jennifer did not respond to the school. However, Mrs. Crumbly texted her son, quote, "'Lol, I'm not mad at you. "'You have to learn not to get caught.'" On Tuesday morning, November 29th, a teacher found a worksheet on Ethan's desk and took a photo. It was a drawing of a gun pointing at the words, The thoughts won't stop. Help me. There was also a drawing of a bullet with words above it, blood everywhere. There was a person between the gun and the bullet. The person appears to have been shot twice. Ethan allegedly wrote, my life is useless. The teacher contacted the Dean of Students and the school counselor. They called the Crumblies for an emergency meeting at the school. Meanwhile, Ethan was placed in the counseling room with his backpack. The counselor obtained the drawing, but Ethan had already scratched out portions. He allegedly said the drawing was part of a video game that he was designing that he wanted a career as a video game designer. Ethan stayed in the office for approximately 90 minutes, working on his science assignment. According to the superintendent, the counselors didn't believe that he would harm others based on his behavior or his demeanor. The Crumblies arrived at the school around 10.30 a.m. School officials showed James and Jennifer the note. They asked Ethan whether he wanted to harm himself or others, and based on his answers, the parents and school officials assumed that he was not a threat. The Crumblies resisted the idea of their son leaving the school and returning to an empty house. The school told the parents to get Ethan into counseling within 48 hours. According to superintendent Tim Thorne, the school permitted Ethan to return to class because he had no disciplinary history. At about 12.51 PM, Ethan Crumbly emerged from a school bathroom with a gun his father bought him four days before. He fired at students in the hallway, killing four and wounding six students and one teacher. After the shooting made the news, Jennifer texted Ethan Crumbly at 1.22 PM, quote, Ethan, don't do it. 15 minutes later, James calls 911 to report a gun was missing from his house and he believed his son might be the shooter. The Crumblies said that the gun had been kept in a locked drawer in the parents' bedroom. So one of the things that's interesting here is that the parents are not being charged by virtue of being parents, but rather because of the actions that they took in general. It's not a case of charging the parents for what the child did. In other words, the argument is that if anyone took the alleged actions that the Crumblies took, they could be charged with the same thing, regardless of whether they were the parents or not. Now to understand this distinction and understand what is happening in this case, we need to talk about the different kinds of homicide in Michigan. So first we start with murder. First degree murder is defined as a killing perpetrated by means of poison, lying in wait, or any other willful, deliberate, and premeditated killing. Premeditated means the person thought about committing the murder before the act. This can take place weeks or months ahead of time, or it can take place uh, one second beforehand. For example, a Michigan man named Carell Burns was convicted of first-degree murder after he made up a story about a robbery to lure his friend into an alley where he purposefully shot and killed him. Burns said that he was acting on the orders of a business associate, but he still created a plan for the murder ahead of time. And this is a classic example of premeditation. And although the Burns case is what most people think about when they hear the words premeditation, the term also applies when someone quickly makes up their mind to kill someone, often in, a split second. And here, Ethan Crumbly is charged with four counts of first degree murder and several counts of attempted murder. So no surprise there. Then we get to manslaughter. In contrast, manslaughter is murder without malice. Manslaughter offenses are not premeditated. Manslaughter is generally defined as the crime of killing a human being without malice aforethought or otherwise in circumstances not accounting to murder. Michigan's criminal statutes do not give a precise definition of manslaughter. As a result, Michigan courts look to uh, the common law to uh, define traditional categories of manslaughter. Manslaughter. that is voluntary manslaughter and involuntary manslaughter. In Michigan, uh, voluntary manslaughter is often a heat of passion crime. It differs from first degree murder because the intent to kill was formed when the defendant had a sudden violent and irresistible passion caused by some sort of provocation. This provocation or excitement has to happen almost immediately without the chance for the person to cool down. And if the person had enough time to get their emotions under control and they still decide to kill another person, then that is actual murder. Now, involuntary manslaughter occurs during a, an accidental or non-intentional death where the defendant had no intent to cause someone else's death, but their reckless act winds up resulting in death. Involuntary manslaughter can also happen during an unlawful act that is a misdemeanor or low level felony like a DOI. Perhaps the most classic example of involuntary manslaughter is when someone is drunk and gets behind the wheel and then kills another person in a car accident. Since everyone is presumed to know that driving while under the influence of alcohol or drugs is reckless and puts others in danger, the resulting fatality is often charged as involuntary manslaughter. Now, other reckless acts or omissions can lead to criminal charges too. For example, if you decided to blow up a giant firework in a crowded space and someone is hit and killed, that would probably be involuntary manslaughter too. potentially something even more serious. You might not have meant to kill a certain person in the crowd, but since it's so dangerous to engage in that activity, you would probably be charged with involuntary manslaughter. Now, under Michigan law, to convict someone of involuntary manslaughter, a prosecutor must prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant caused the death of the victim, that in doing the act that caused the victim's death, the defendant acted in a grossly negligent manner, and that the defendant caused the death without lawful excuse or justification. Now, proving someone else's acts or omissions actually caused someone else's death death is not an easy task, especially when the people who were charged didn't commit the physical acts that led to the death. So in this case, that means the prosecution has to prove that Ethan Crumbly's intentional acts did not break the chain of causation that started when the parents purchased the gun. The jury instruction on causation explains, it is not enough that the defendant's act made it possible for the death to occur. In order to find that the death was caused by the defendant, you must find beyond a reasonable doubt that the death was the natural and necessary result of the defendant's act. Now here, the prosecutor can show that the son easily obtained the gun as a direct result of the parents' actions, but that's not nearly enough. The prosecutor will probably also make the case that the Crumbleys failed to secure the weapon, that uh, the weapon wasn't locked up, or if it was, it wasn't properly secured and uh, their son had easy access to the gun. But in the Crumbleys' defense, their lawyers will probably argue that the school didn't warn the parents he had threatened to use a firearm, that their complaint was only that he'd made a drawing with violent imagery, including a firearm, which, probably millions of young boys are doing every single day. And while he was arguably fantasizing about killing, uh, the school and the parents concluded that he wasn't a threat to himself or others. And Ethan's internet search for ammo was just that, a search, and of course there are many legal reasons to use ammunition in a gun. I'm sure they'll argue that given the short history of the whole family going to the shooting range, that the most likely conclusion is that uh, Ethan Crumbley was searching for ammunition to use at the range as they had done in the past. On top of that, to prove the crime of involuntary manslaughter, the state has to prove that the Crumbleys acted with gross negligence, not simple negligence where you act unreasonably. But gross negligence means more than carelessness. It means willfully disregarding the results to others that might follow from an act or failure to act. The prosecution must also prove that to a reasonable person, it would have been apparent that the result was likely to be serious injury to another person. And this is a very difficult case. Just because the Crumblies didn't act as another person might doesn't necessarily mean that they acted with gross negligence. And assuming that the Crumblies did not lock up their gun, would that? itself constitute gross negligence. Well, in many states, it is a crime to not properly store a firearm when there is a child in the home. But Michigan does not have any child access prevention laws. That doesn't mean it's per se unlawful for the Crumblies to carelessly store their firearm. And of course, the Crumblies do not admit that they were negligent in storing their gun and ammunition. And of course, not searching Ethan Crumbly's backpack uh, under these circumstances is also a point of contention. I'm sure the prosecution will argue that failing to search the backpack was also grossly negligent. But under these circumstances, the Crumblies allegedly didn't find out that their gun was missing until after the school shooting had already started. And of course the school didn't search the backpack either. Though there is one other issue that may hurt the Crumbleys defense and that is their attempt to evade arrest. When there's evidence the defendant tried to run away or escape after they were accused of a crime or police attempt to make an arrest, that can be used against the defendant in court as proof that they had consciousness of guilt. After the prosecutor announced the parents would be charged, the parents withdrew $4,000 and hid in a Detroit warehouse. The Crumbleys lawyer said that they were not fleeing from police and they left town because because of violent threats. Although their lawyer said the couple was preparing to turn themselves in, the circumstances of their capture don't look good. Now, while the circumstances of this case are unusual and no doubt will be difficult for prosecutors, there is some precedent for charging parents in somewhat similar circumstances. In 2020, Jamel James pleaded no contest to involuntary manslaughter after a six-year-old child in his home shot and killed another six-year-old child, Kayla Rowland, at school. In that case, a witness demonstrated how they had seen James and another man who stayed in the house playing with a. Gun, twirling it in their hands. Now, other adults have been charged with involuntary manslaughter for not securing their guns, but prosecutors tend to charge adults only when the shooter was someone very young, as in the Roland case. And that's because the law presumes that children that young can't form criminal intent, but the same isn't true of a teenager who can form their own criminal intent. Teens are presumed to have agency, which means that the chain of causation between the adults and the homicide is usually broken. Oh, and one last thing. I know right now you're probably fumbling with your phone trying to find the next podcast to listen to, but you can't because this is an ad. But it doesn't have to be that way. Instead, you can go to watchnebula.com slash You can get access to all of our original podcasts ad-free, plus exclusive originals and experimental shows from your favorite educational-ish Creators, and best of all, you're helping to support us make even more amazing content. So, before you go, check out watchnebula.com/legal eagle radio to support this channel and this podcast directly.